Good evening, everybody. Happy to see you here. Could I get a sense by a show of hands who was not here last week? Okay, so so most people were here last week and a few new people. Welcome. Glad you can join us. Uh, let me just say there there are handouts coming around. I think this is the new handout, but I think we do have the old handout for uh, the handout from last week for people who weren't here. My hope is that your time here tonight will contribute to your well-being, and that you will uh, have more uh, information and more capacity to connect across differences. So I'd like to invite you, as you're listening, to um, be practicing what I talked about last week in terms of racial mindfulness. So to just notice what catches you, what catches your attention, and particularly around these polarizations like, oh, yeah, I'm right about that, or oh, I'm wrong about that, or I'm good or bad or guilty or innocent, just to be noticing inside yourself. And I'm planning to talk for maybe half an hour, and then I would like to have us in small groups and give you a chance to do a talking, listening practice, which I, I think it's really important to have the opportunity to practice talking about race and be in conversation about race. I'd like to start with a story tonight about a former student of mine. This student was a young Hmong woman. Her name was Kay. And as I mentioned last week, I asked my students to put themselves in a situation where they're the different one. And I call it a cultural plunge. Oftentimes, students have to go looking for this sort of situation. But sometimes, this just shows up in their life. And this is what happened for Kay. So a friend of hers invited her to a party, invited her and her boyfriend to a party. And um, she went to this party thinking she was going to go to a typical kind of college party. There'd be maybe drinking and dancing and socializing. And so she got to the party and she discovered all of that was true. The thing that surprised her was that she was one of uh, only a few only a few people there who was not in a wheelchair or had a visible physical disability. And so this uh, was new territory for her. She um, had the great opportunity to notice the kinds of thoughts that came up for her. And um, she wrote about this. She said, you know, here I was sitting next to a couple of guys, and um, one came and, you know, helped the other one light his cigarette. And I was thinking he shouldn't be smoking. I mean, that's not good for his health. And and here she was smoking, but, you know, she had this kind of idea about what someone in a wheelchair should or shouldn't do. And uh, she noticed as someone was going, maneuvering down this kind of small hallway, she felt this impulse to get up and go help him. And she realized this woman was very capable and actually could handle it just fine. But she noticed all of these things come up inside of her um, that we could say are stereotypes. Um, so she's noticing her own mind. And uh, I think this is really useful. She's noticing her stereotypes. Stereotypes are like a fixed idea about someone else. 
but also fixed ideas about ourselves. So at this party, she was the different one, and that can be awkward. It can be uncomfortable. But that isn't the same as oppression. So oppression is something systematic, sustained over time. It's not just being uncomfortable on a temporary basis. But it still can be useful to be uncomfortable, but it's not the same as oppression. Um, and one of the things that happened after this party, because she had gotten to know some of these folks, she got invited to a holiday gathering at a local restaurant. And so she said they were in the, she, she was in the lobby and there were other people in the lobby. And the man who was organizing this, who was in a wheelchair, went up to the host and started talking about the arrangements and the number of people in the party. And uh, Kay had then went up to the host and was going to ask something about the timing of when they were going to be seated. And as soon as she walked up, the host started talking to her and trying to make the arrangements with her. And she said, no, 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 you know, he's the one in charge, you know, not me. And uh, But it took a little effort for for her to you know, get through to the host that she wasn't the one to be making the arrangements with. And so one of the learnings that she had is that as a young Hmong woman, she had had many experiences of feeling oppressed. She had experiences when she went out to restaurants with her white boyfriend, and she would be treated as if she weren't there or as if she couldn't speak English. She felt very invisible. And then she saw in this moment, oh, here she's the one being given the privilege. Not that she wanted the privilege in that moment of being treated as the one who knows, the one who's capable. Uh, but she saw, oh, I'm not just oppressed. I also have privilege. And in this case, privilege because uh, that she has an ability that means she's not in a wheelchair. And then that shapes how people perceive her and how they treat her. So um, the reason I'm telling this story is I'm, I'm wanting to illustrate this shifting nature of privilege and oppression and how we have multiple aspects of identity. Some of them may be privileged and some of them targeted or oppressed. And that whether we're receiving privilege can shift just like that in an instant. The other point that I want to make is that the privilege here in this case of being treated as someone who knows and someone who is an authoritative knower, um, that is not so unreasonable. Like that's, that's not like, uh, being greedy and like taking all the resources in the world and not leaving resources for other people. This is really just wanting to be treated like a human being, to have basic human rights. And so tonight when we're talking about privilege, some of what we're talking about, uh, some people question whether we should use the term privilege because really it's something everyone deserves to be treated with respect, uh, to be taken into account, to be visible to other people in the world. So when we have these experiences systematically over time uh, of experiencing oppression, what happens for people many times is uh, developing protection. Um, it hurts to be devalued, to not be taken into account, to have that happen over and over again. 
And so um, when I'm asking you to pay attention to racial privilege for some of us, uh, it, it may be that that's not such a straightforward thing because based on your own experiences, the complicated realities you have around privilege and oppression, you might have your own woundedness, your own protection based on ways you have uh, been oppressed. And so um, I, I think what I would like to say about that is if if it comes up that you feel like I don't, I don't want to look at race or I don't want to look at racial privilege, um, then I think that's important to start where you are and to just notice that and to be interested and curious. What's that about for me? What am I running into inside myself? What is it? Uh, because often when we've been wounded and we have that hurt, that is the uh, aspect of our identity that really we have awareness about. And so that part might need more attention. It might need more support, more empathy, before someone feels like uh, I can look at, at some other place. And so we each have our own path around this process of how we engage with ourselves and this process of seeing how we separate as uh different aspects of ourselves, how we separate from other people. And we've been socialized into this and had life experiences that have shaped this. I'd like to say a little bit more about privilege in particular. I'm drawing from a book by a man named Alan Johnson, and this book is called Privilege, Power, and Difference. It's a pretty short book, and um, I think very useful. Alan Johnson also has a talk online, several talks online. He has, has a website, Alan G. Johnson, and he has a website where he has uh, some blog posts, but also some talks he's given. And really, if you listen to about 20 minutes or half an hour of one of his talks, it probably summarizes the whole book. So uh, it could be an efficient way to get get the information. So you know, now that I look at what I typed on my paper, I think I did it wrong. But I'll put it on the handout for next time so that I make sure I have the spelling right. So Ellen says, difference itself is not the problem. The problem is that the world has been organized in ways that encourage people to use difference to include or exclude, to reward or punish, to value or to devalue. So difference has been used in these ways, and um, that's what has created the trouble around difference, is how it's been used. So privilege, according to him, just means something of value that is denied to others simply because of the group they... No. When one group has something of value 
that is denied to others simply because of the group that they belong to, rather than something that they've done or failed to do. So it just means you're given something if you have privilege. Other people aren't given that. They aren't included. They aren't rewarded with that. Um, they aren't valued just because of the group that they're perceived to belong to. And actually the perception part is important because, um, say, if someone perceived me to be lesbian, it didn't, it wouldn't matter if I were lesbian or not in that moment. If they perceived me as lesbian and that was troublesome to them and they devalued me, I would be not receiving heterosexual privilege based on that perception. So privilege is not the same as arrogance or being uppity or being stuck up. It just means you're on the receiving end of good things because of the group that you're perceived to be in. And um, so yesterday I, I thought I had a little racial moment, an unremarkable racial moment. I, I was walking in my neighborhood doing an errand, and I live in Uptown, and rather than walking on busy Hennepin Avenue, I was walking through the neighborhood through Kenwood, and um, you might have seen these little free libraries, the little boxes, and there were actually several along my way, which I was pleased about because I like to go and browse and see what's in those. And uh, it was the middle of the day. There weren't very many people out on the street. And um, the thought that I had is I can walk down this street and meander and cross the street to go look at this box or that box, and I don't have to worry about anybody thinking I shouldn't be here on this street. Um, no one's going to call the police and think that I'm up to no good. I and and you know this is you could say well this, this seems pretty basic, a basic human right, but this isn't the way it is for everybody, and and I know that because my my own kids in our neighborhood, um, and, and this was when they were very young, not even as black men, but as young 11, 12-year-old boys, uh, the police were called when they were walking through the alley or down the sidewalk on, on the block down from ours, people perceiving that there was trouble just because they were walking there. So so this is what it means to have privilege, is I can walk there and not think about it. And I know that they do not walk in our neighborhood uh, without thinking about it. So... Always they're, they're aware of who's around them uh, and how they might be perceived. And this goes back to the piece about a basic human right. It seems like uh, it would be good if all people could just walk with ease through their neighborhood uh, without worry. So oppression, the flip side of privilege, takes many forms. So this can be avoidance, exclusion, rejection, unequal access to resources and opportunities. It could be violence. So everything from the very subtle to the really extreme. And interpersonally, it often plays out in really simple ways of um, not giving somebody eye contact or not smiling, not doing those little signs that would say, Yes, you're welcome here. You belong. You're included. And although this sounds simple or basic, it's actually very fundamental because belonging 
is basic to our survival. And so when someone has consistent experiences of feeling they don't belong, uh, in my mind that's trauma because, uh, because belonging is, we're social beings. We, we need that sense of belonging. And, um, so those little, little things actually can have a pretty major effect over time. There are paradoxes of privilege that Johnson names. So privilege is received by individuals, but it has nothing to do with who you are as an individual. It just has to do with the categories that you're perceived to be part of or in order to receive that privilege or not part of in order to not receive it. And just being privileged doesn't actually mean you feel privileged. So many people who uh, I might identify as privileged don't feel privileged uh, because they, they uh, I think, sometimes don't understand the system that we're a part of. They think in very individual terms. And, um, and they also, because like some people think, well, if I were privileged, I would be happy or my life would be easy. And in our culture today, many of us have challenges in our lives. We don't have easy lives. We don't feel like, oh, I'm privileged. I've got it. I've got it going on. So, um, this is one of the paradoxes that you can have privilege in these terms without feeling privileged. Because privilege is related to systems, systems of exclusion or inclusion, systems of reward and punishment, we can't change privilege individually. So you can't just say, no, I don't want my privilege. Um, you, you actually can't get rid of it so easily. So we have to change systems in order to uh, change privilege. We can do little things to interrupt the practices uh, that we're socialized into. We can do little things to include people, and that can be big over time. But it isn't sufficient just to change individuals. And I think this connects to this thing about the self and the rest of the world. It's like we are shaped by the rest of the world in terms of privilege. And so as we change ourselves, we help change the world. As we change the world, that changes us. So there's this connection. Uh, there isn't really this separate self, separate from this world that we're situated within. Systems of privilege provide endless ways of seeing and thinking about the world that make privilege invisible. So it's not an accident uh, that those of us who have racial privilege might not have been thinking about this in our lives, certainly not growing up, maybe starting to become aware as adults, but that's not an accident. So that's that's built in to the system. And I'd like to turn at this point to talking about whiteness and the white racial frame. And, and you have uh, on your handout some information about the white racial frame. So this term comes from Joe Fagan, who uh, wrote a book by this title. And what I have for you on the handout you have 
is actually a summary that uh, comes from Marjorie Otto and Herbert Perkins, and they um, do a lot of race dialogues, race circles, race trainings here in the Twin Cities. So I've given you um, a link if you're interested in their work. And actually, the one page that you have, I condensed from a five-page summary that they have of, of the whole book. So if you wanted more information, you could go there. So the white racial frame is this worldview that encompasses important racial ideas and beliefs, terms, images, emotions, inclinations, and interpretations, and determining a way of being, a perspective on life, and language and explanations that help structure, normalize, and make sense out of society. This is as much subconscious or unconscious as it is conscious. And this dominant frame shapes our thinking action in everyday life situations. So this is saying the white racial frame, or we could say whiteness, structures everything. And it's so built in that it's taken for granted because it's the dominant framing in our culture. So it shapes how we can think about race, it shapes how we talk about race, it shapes how we categorize, uh, it shapes what we think of as normal, it shapes what we think of as good. Um, it's shaping all kinds of things. And this is, the white racial frame is not meant as uh, a put down of white people or white culture. Um, it's It's meant to be a naming about something that Everyone is under the influence of in some way. Everyone because it's the dominant frame in the culture. And frame meaning a worldview. So, so people aren't under the influence of it in the same way, but the idea is that everyone is under the influence. And it would be possible for a person of any race to hold a white framed worldview. Um, and so, I, like another racial moment that I had since I last saw you, I was having coffee with a colleague of mine, an African-American man, and um, we were talking about race, and he does quite a bit of race training. And he said, I prefer uh, these days not really to talk about race too much. I prefer to talk about culture. And so, in my mind... Um, and, and we talked about this some. He, he knows my view that I think it's important to talk about race uh, and that that's different than talking about culture. And sometimes talking about culture, I think, is a bypass from what's uncomfortable in terms of talking about race. So uh, we talked about this, but in a, in a way, I think this is an example of him being under the influence of the white racial frame and partly because he's training uh, people in Minnesota, many of whom are white, and he's trying, he, I think he's trying to figure out how to navigate as a trainer, how to um, connect with people. And uh, But I think that's shaped by the white racial frame. I have an example. Um, my students do papers based on their conversations with people about race, and I, I've been grading them this week. So um, this is an example uh, from uh, 
a white woman who interviewed a black friend of hers. And she wrote, He knows that society and people around him are more comfortable if he just identifies as black because they want to hear what they already think and feel. And actually, this young man told her he doesn't prefer to be identified black. He would prefer to be identified American. But he thinks it's simpler for people if he just says black because he is assuming that's what uh, they think he is. When I asked him how being of a specific race affects his life, he said it affects him in every way. It affects simply how people look and talk to him. Dean, of course, said it doesn't mean everyone treats you differently or in a racist manner, but it still affects how they perceive him. Dean says he doesn't often feel like an individual human. He feels like people address him like another black man. He is just one of the many that are the same. And this um, this pattern of, like, when a group is the other, so a group that has disability or a group that is poor, um, groups that are othered tend to be seen as the same. And people in the dominant groups are more often seen as individuals. So he's talking about this. People don't see me as an individual. I'm one of those, the same. Yes. Uh, I hadn't been planning to, but I will take this opportunity to say a little something. I'm, I'm guessing you're not the only person with that question. No, 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 no. I, I think it's relevant. <laughs> so, so, um, like if I were saying, um, well, I got together with a friend of mine over break. Um, if I just said that, most people would think I'm saying my white friend. So if I said to you, I got together with my black friend. Now that's probably not really relevant in this telling. I, I did tell you that about the example I gave about my colleague because I wanted to make a point about someone of any race could be under the influence of um, the white racial frame. So in that way, I thought it was relevant to the story to name it. But if I were just telling you about the friends I saw, I don't think it's relevant to say, oh, well, my black friend. I saw my black friend. So, um, but, but if you were at a party and there's only one black person in the room and you were trying to talk about this person you talked with, I think I did something. Um, and it, and it was, it was efficient to say, well, you know who I mean, the, the black guy who was there. Like, I think that would be the way to go rather than say, well, you know, the guy who was in the corner, the guy in the green shirt, the guy who, you know, was eating the tacos. Like, now, now you're doing, and, and actually there's research on this that shows, uh, when people are asked to problem solve with someone who's of a different race, white people uh, really um, are at a deficit in problem solving because there are things like they're being so careful about not talking and and so they aren't as efficient in getting the problem solved so so i think part of it is assessing is this is this relevant here and, and it, it, am i just avoiding it because i think it's a bad thing to mention that there was a black person at the party so i i hope that helps and honestly, I don't know. I, like some of it, like I said last week, we're making it up. 
So um, what I would do is start, like you noticed your pattern. So notice your pattern. What do you usually do? Be interested in that. Why do you do it that way? What's that about? So, so learn by what you're already doing. That's where I would start. So I would like to say a little bit about white moral Teflon. And I, I think this is a really interesting naming that uh, comes from the white racial frame. So it's this idea of white people continuing to understand themselves to be good, decent folk. An accented view of white virtue overrides lack of conscious awareness of or major minimization of racialized behaviors enacted by oneself or others in one white, in one's white community. So I, I have some examples from my students about this. Um, one of them said, um, I have this former friend, uh, a, a white woman, who married somebody who, uh, when we were talking about it, this person who's the former friend told me that her husband was part of the KKK. And so the person who was telling me this story said, uh, you know, I, I just thought, how could, you know, how could my friend, how could that be okay with my friend, uh, to be married to somebody who's in the KKK? And so she actually talked to her friend about this. Um, and her friend said, well, you know, my husband, he's a good man. You know, he's a good man. And so, um, you know, basically he's a good man. And so I think this happens a lot that we focus on somebody's a good person and so then it excuses all kinds of things. And the KKK might be more extreme um, than most of our examples. Um, another student told me about her sister who she and her sister were white. Her sister had a black boyfriend and she told me their grandpa would say things to the boyfriend, like, you, you can't, you can't help that you're black. Uh, and it would be, you know, as if he had the plague or something. You can't help that. And, um, and again, the grandpa thinks of himself and people in his family think of him. He's a good person. And I, I know I'm going to say something a little paradoxical here, but I basically think most people are, we are, we are good people. So we are good people. But but when we organize a lot around how good we are, then we minimize certain of our behaviors. And so can we be good people and look at the ways that we minimize or the ways that we don't live up to our own values, don't have integrity uh, in some of our interactions? So we can be good people and we can look at some of our shortcomings or even without calling a shortcoming, some of the ways we've been socialized that um, don't serve us if what we want to do is connect across racial differences and contribute to social justice. So, um, you know, uh, many times people focus on their good intentions. And I think intentions matter. I think they count. And they're insufficient. So uh, we have to also look at the consequences of our actions. 
And when someone tells us that they have been hurt or are upset or, you know, have taken offense at our, our behavior, I think it's really important to, uh, receive that information. Despite our good intentions, we can do or say things that people experience as hurtful. And this is how we learn is actually it's a gift if somebody, um, is willing to invest in you and give you that feedback. So, uh, rather than be defensive or deflect it, it's really important to try and receive it. And if you get defensive initially, uh, then can you repair? Can you say, you know, I, I was defensive. I, I couldn't take in what you were telling me. Would you please tell me again? Would you be willing to tell me now? Or, you know, so our defensiveness doesn't have to be the end of the story. Uh, we don't have to give up on ourselves or the other person. We can hang in there and learn from that process. One of the things that is linked to this is not to take things so personally. So people of any race can say mean, hurtful things, can tell offensive jokes. Um, so on this level of prejudice, uh, anybody can act that out. And um, I think it's important, if you're experiencing that, to also hold this bigger context of systems of privilege and oppression as a way to try and make sense out of people's behavior. And, and this is true whether someone's privileged and they do something you find offensive or someone's oppressed and they do something you find offensive, uh, to think about this system that impacts and harms all of us. I think holding that context helps bring empathy and understanding as you try to interpret and make sense out of people's behavior. Um, so part of this is not taking things so personally. And uh, there's a great example from one of my white students who uh, was talking with a man of color. And she said, one thing that I noticed about myself was my sense of disbelief. I know this man very well, and I still wanted to tell him he was wrong and that his experience of racism couldn't be true. I knew, of course, that they were. But my gut wanted to deny them because I felt associated with the people that offended him and because I was mad that it happened to him. I found myself wanting to interrupt him and say, I'm not like the people who have been mean to you. So she had great inner awareness about lots of different things going on inside. So she could feel how, oh, it feels like you're talking about me when you talk about that. And of course that happened to you. But no, I can't believe it happened to you. So lots of important naming that she was doing. So there's more that I could say to you about the white racial frame, and maybe I'll do that um, next week or possibly later today. But I want to transition so that we aren't shortchanged about your conversation. Um, because many of us don't have these kinds of conversations, I, I think it's important to have a little practice time. So on one side of your handout, um, there are some questions. So you will not likely have time to talk about all these questions. 
what I would recommend is that once you get in your group, that you decide where you'd like to start. So if you were here last week and you did the homework around racial moments, maybe you have something to share. But if you weren't here or you didn't do that, you'd do some other questions. Um, I have some questions that relate to the handouts from last time, looking at scripts, polarized identities, and attachments. Uh, so maybe that interests you. I also have a question here about the right, what I've said so far about the white racial frame. But the first three questions are really something uh, that anybody, whether they were here or not last week, could talk about. And uh, these are questions that I use as a starting place with my students, just basically, you know, talking about uh, how would you describe your racial identity? When were you first aware of it? Which um, some people um, maybe haven't thought about that, and maybe that's even a challenging question. So um, you can start with, as a group, you can decide wh where you'd like to start. And um, I would suggest groups of three or four at the most, not bigger. It's useful to hear other people's experiences, but I also want you to have a chance to talk. And whether you're talking or listening, you could be noticing, what's this like for me? What's getting stirred up inside? What are my feelings? What's happening in my body? Um, so that you're noticing your own experience, whether you're talking or listening. So do you have any questions about what I'm inviting you into? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think there is a dilemma there uh, because many people believe there are distinct biological and genetic differences between so-called racial groups. Uh, not really. Not there, there, there are, there's no uh, particular gene or characteristic that distinguishes any one, one so-called racial group from another. Right. 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 And so that's true biologically, and yet there's a social reality to race. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so people do have different views about, like my colleague. Um, I respect the work that he does, he, but he has a different view than I do. And um, so... For this evening, I am inviting you into a conversation focused on race. And I, I know that people um, will make different sorts of choices in their own lives. Yeah. So are there other questions about what I'm asking you to do in a group? So I would recommend that you just look to people close to you, and those are the very perfect people to be in a group with. And if, if you're astray and you don't have a group, you could let me know, and I will 
find you a partner. Three or four at the most. So if you're still talking, I'd like to invite you to come back to the big group. So we have a few more minutes together, and I wanted to provide an opportunity for you to share something that you talked about in your group and also provide an opportunity if you have questions about things that came up in your group, things that I said this week or last week or whatever's on your mind. So it's just a opportunity to hear from you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it is a valid fear because what I would say is there's something called white racial bonding that is about white people and how white people behave together. And so when you say something like, well, I'm going to go to a talk or a group or a class on race or whiteness, um, it's unsettling some unspoken norms. And what I would say is your belonging is on the line. Like, how do you belong in your white racial community? It says if you behave as a white person. And that means you don't talk about race because that's what white people do. And so your belonging's on the line. And that's why it's so scary. Because, of course, you need to belong with your friends. So this is why I think we need to be gentle and kind and patient with ourselves because a lot's at stake if you start to stray from your category. And, and this is true of all racial categories. People within the category have ways that they make sure people are behaving as a person should who's in that category. So there are subtle and not-so-subtle things that happen. So that's what I think you're running into. Well, I think there's variation, so not everyone is defensive. But I do think when you bring up this topic among white people, people could be defensive. Um, and people, white people maybe in particular, easily feel shame about this. Like, I don't know and I feel inadequate. And um, And shame is pervasive among all people. Well, not all people, but in the United States, I think it's pretty pervasive. Um, so I don't know that you can get away from people having those feelings, but um, I think what you can do is learn how do, how do you stay present when you or others are, are feeling those feelings, and how do you not, like they aren't bad because they got defensive or you picked up on those subtle things, uh, so you don't want to write them off totally. But how do you show up and share more of who you are so you don't have to disconnect from parts of yourself to connect with them? So that would be my my thought. Yeah, I think that's a, a question that has a lot of relevance. Because um, I, I used to talk about it this way, like I was trained to be a good white girl. And usually you don't, I didn't think about it like, wait, like I was a good girl, but really I was being a good white girl. And good white girls 
like to keep everybody comfortable and not have it get too upsetting. And um, one of my former students who had good white girl training um, was out for dinner with her white husband and white children and the husband's white grandmother. And they had a waitress who was a woman of color. And uh, the grandma didn't say things directly to this woman, but when the woman would leave the table, she would make derogatory comments about her. And my student had this real dilemma, like she said, uh, you know, I, I didn't know what to do because I wanted to have a nice family dinner, so I, I, I didn't want to say something, and um, but this wasn't my values, and I didn't want my children to be experiencing me saying nothing. And, uh, but I didn't want to be disrespectful to grandma. And so when we looked at, like, what does respect mean? Does respect mean not having differences of opinion, not having different views? So she had to keep a part of herself out of the situation and lost her integrity. Um, but that's the good white girl training. So I empathize with that dilemma of wanting a nice family dinner. Um, but but I think, you know, somebody's going to be uncomfortable in that situation. In this case, uh, it wasn't grandma. <laughs> hmm. Yes. Oh, you're just... <laughs> Yes. Mm hmm Yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah, and, and so this is where it gets complicated because like social class uh shapes shapes culture a lot. So, you know, my family, people went deer hunting, you know, and we don't talk about books around the table. You talk about snowmobiling or car racing or something like that, you know. So other white families would talk about books or the news or something, but my family didn't. So that's a partly social class. So there's lots of variation. So when I say good white girl, it's quite a big generalization. Yeah, so what what do you know about how how you were raised as a good white girl? <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. So that would be like being a good girl in your family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's some helpful naming that maybe this is heavily Midwestern flavored. My, my version of a good white girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I appreciate all the complexity that you're naming and your awareness about different aspects of privilege and also the resentment that you talked about. I think um, that's so important to name because people have, and this goes back to not feeling privileged, you know, because people have hard lives in various ways, I, I think many of us feel some resentment and that's part of what we need to work with in order to soften our hearts. And, and really heal, uh, ourselves. So, 
I, I just appreciate the complexity of the naming you're doing. And I'm aware that we're almost out of time. Um, I'm wondering if it would be okay to sit for a minute. And before we do that, I just want to say, if there are things you'd like me to talk about next week, uh, you could email me or talk to me afterward. I'd, I'd be happy to take into account uh, your preferences. So let's just sit for a minute before we end. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.